All right, well, welcome to the fourth lesson on the nature of authority. This lesson is called Obtaining Authority. We've discussed a lot of things so far concerning authority, and it would only be fitting if we dial discussed how to acquire authority. But let's review as we have been each time, and we'll continue to do so with each lesson. We'll review because some of these foundational truths are critical to understanding the subject of authority. So we've defined authority as the right or power to make decisions, to give orders, and to enforce obedience. So it isn't just the right or authority or power to make a decision, but it's also the power to enforce the obedience. Parents understand that. We have been authorized to enforce the obedience we require of our children. Bosses understand that. The military certainly understands that. And the police are the best example of it. They call it compliance. And I was talking with the police officer recently. He had to uh, answer a domestic call 20 years ago. Apparently, 20, I guess 20 so years ago, uh, there was a woman who came to our church and she needed to call the police. She was not a church member. And <laughs> uh, the domestic was that her son had put an axe in the hood of her car. So the officer, who is retired now, but we, were meeting, we were, had a meeting together at a place, uh, he said, I've answered a domestic at your church. He said, worst domestic of my entire police career. He said he shows up and the woman is frantic. And sure enough, there's an axe in the hood of the car. He said, I get the warrant. We're going to go to the son's house and arrest him. And we get to the door, knock on the door. I have, he said, the officer said, it's me and the rookie cop. And the biggest man I've ever seen in my life answers the door. He said he was about 6'8", 350 pounds. And he said, sir, you're under arrest. I need you to come with me for the domestic assault of your mother. And the big man said, I'm not coming. And he said, well, sir, you put an ax in the hood of your car and you're going to need to come with me. He said, I'm not coming. You can't make me. He said, and I'll fight to the death if you're not making me come. And the officer said, all right, then. He said, I looked in the apartment and saw his wife or girlfriend said, ma'am, you want to step aside. That way I don't, I don't uh, drop this man on you when I shoot him in the chest. And the officer, uh, the, uh, the, the big subject, uh, suspect, his eyes got real big. He said, the rookie got real nervous. He said, what? He said, well, you've already told me you're going to fight. I can't take you. You're too big. So we're just going to go ahead and jump ahead to lethal force. So I'm just going to shoot you in the chest and drop you where you stand. Because he has the authority to enforce obedience and compliance. And then he said, the man dropped his head and said, well, I don't want to come. He said, son, nobody wants to go to jail but you put an ax in the hood of your mother's car and I have to arrest you. He said, so the man finally submitted without any incident. He said, I couldn't even handcuff him. I had to get leg manacles. He wouldn't fit in the cop car. We had to get a truck or like a van. So I think we understand the authority to enforce obedience, especially when it comes to the police. Authority has three limiters. We covered that. The three limiters of authority are the domain, the area of which you're authorized. The scope or what you're authorized to do. What's the scope of your assignment? And then, of course, a time limit. And we discussed that in earnest. The premier purpose of all authority is to create and maintain peace and harmony wherever men are found. The reason we've been given authority, whether as parents or employers or employees, as military, police, as pastors or educators, is to enforce and create peace wherever we go. The educator, their job is to teach, but they also have the authorization to maintain peace in the classroom. So never forget that the premier purpose of all authority is to create and maintain peace and harmony wherever you may go. 
Authority must be properly stewarded. We looked at that. Possessing authority creates immediate responsibility, and that is the responsibility to create and maintain that peace and harmony. And we said previously, if we fail to exercise and steward authority properly, if we fail in our assignment of creating and then maintaining peace, well, the worst case scenario is we will be replaced, and that's demotion. That's why it's important we understand the subject of authority, we understand the nature of authority, and then we understand how to implement it and use it so that we're always going about as a representative of God in the earth or for our boss or the school district or the police, we're going about maintaining peace everywhere we go. Christians should be peace producers. Blessed are the peacemakers. We make peace. We don't keep peace. We make peace everywhere we go. And then authority is designed to be delegated to accomplish the purpose at hand. So it is delegated. It isn't just bottlenecked. We, in authority, we don't delegate, excuse me, we don't micromanage. We're to delegate it. We're to give it out to as many people as we can. The more people we can delegate our authority to, the further we can spread the peace and the calm and the, uh, the harmony that we need everywhere we go. So that being reviewed, let's move on now to our newer subjects. Authority is one of the greatest gifts God has given to mankind. Think about it. Authority is one of the greatest gifts. All authority comes from God, and he gives that to us to accomplish his will on the earth. The fact that God would entrust a human with the right or power to make decisions, give orders, and enforce obedience in the earth is hard to fathom. That God would trust us. I think we know he doesn't fully trust us, but he trusts us enough and in some areas to give us a measure of his authority. Every human enjoys a common base level of authority. And we would say authority, that first base level is authority over personal domain. We covered about having authority over your mind, your will, your emotions, and your appetites. If a believer, especially, but if a believer cannot exercise dominion and authority over their mind, will, emotions or appetites, it's going to greatly hinder their, their availability and usefulness to God and the earth. You can't promote crazy people. You can't promote those that easily fall apart or crumble under pressure. You can't really promote really obese people into too many high places of authority because of all the health issues. Now, that, that's not fat shaming. It's just a statement of fact. Even the military who exercises extreme lethal force and authority. They have fitness regiments and fitness criteria you have to meet before you can be entrusted with any kind of authority in the military. We practice and exercise authority over mind, will, emotions, flesh, family, possessions, etc. However, there are still greater levels of authorization to be obtained, such as authorization in a career or personal business in the realm of civil governments and in the realm of the kingdom. And these things build upon themselves. If you master your mind, your will, your emotions, and your flesh at home, then you can go to class and be promoted in the classroom at school. Then you can go on to college and have your first job, have your career, and you'll work your way up. When you work in the secular world, as most Christians do, you really you understand there's a hierarchy and a pecking order among the workforce. Not everybody at that work, that place of employment, is ever going to be management leadership potential. They're never going to be that kind of material. They're never going to be leadership material because they have failed to exercise and master their authority over their emotions, their time management, their skill, their expertise. 
And there are people who the boss wants to fire at first chance he gets because they are sloppy with the authority they've been entrusted. Because authority is power and allows one to accomplish great things, carnal men and women will always strive to acquire it. However, there are three ways to acquire authority, but only one of them is biblical. So the biblical way to acquire authority is to submit to it. The first way to get authority is to submit to it. That's the biblical way. We're going to cover that over and over again. The second way to acquire authority is to steal it. Just steal somebody's authority. We'd call that a dictator or a Jezebel. The third way you obtain authority is to fabricate it or to make it up. <laughs> I think about in the book of Judges, one of the last stories in the book of Judges after the death of Samson. You get into the, um, there's a cult. I think it's a cult of Eliezer. I can't remember who it is. But basically, they just fabricate a cult. And they, they take a Levite, a wandering Levite, and make him the priest over this newfound religion that they just made up. And then the men of Dan come and steal the cult, the idol, and the priest away. And they take it to the northern tribe of Dan, and they erect this cult up there. That's fabrication of authority. And, and that's not even too extreme. Happens all the time. Only the first option is biblical and God-honoring. The other two options, stealing and fabrication, are rooted in rebellion and result in damage and destruction. We will begin with the proper way to obtain authority. And I would add shame on any believer who does not seek more influence for the glory of God in the advancement of the kingdom. Now, when we talk about promotion, we're not talking about your face on the billboard. Uh, promotion in the kingdom doesn't look like popularity or fame. So we need to scrub that from our Christian culture. We are still very Americanized in the American church. And by Americanized, I mean we're very entertainment-driven. Most, that may be much of a word, too many, let's say that, too many churches today are entertainment-driven. Too many churches today are algorithm-driven. Too many churches today are social media-driven. And when that becomes your framework, then you start to drift away from the kingdom's culture. And the Bible is designed to constantly reset us to God's ethic, God's standard, God's framework, and God's pattern. Yes, there's a lot of tools out there to be used, but if you're not careful, the tool begins to use you rather than you use the tool. And social media is a tremendous case in point. Social media is, I would say, a dangerous tool, but most people just get used by it. They don't really use the tool. When we talk about promotion, we're not talking about becoming an influencer. We're not talking about your fame. We're not talking about getting more followers. When we talk about promotion in the kingdom, we're talking about more work. Kingdom promotion always looks like more work because the kingdom has to be built. It doesn't have to be marketed. It has to be built. It doesn't have to be promoted. It has to be built. God does the work through us. His Holy Spirit comes upon us. And so when we talk about promotion, don't think about fame and glory. Don't think about being the upfront face. Think about God entrusting you with more work. Uh, let's talk about submission to authority. The only biblical way to acquire authority is to submit to it and thereby be promoted into a greater measure of it. That is the only biblical way to acquire authority. There is a level of authority given to us through human autonomy. 
when you were born into the earth, your mom and dad began to teach you how to exercise self-control. And you learned the powerful word no. And you learned that when mom and dad say no, you can control your appetites and your attitudes. And so there's a, a born in or inborn inheritance of authority at a very basic level. As you grow in your home and mom and dad trust you more, you may be given your own room, you're given your own sock drawer, you're given your own toys, and this is all promotion. At the same time, if you prove yourself untrustworthy and you fail to steward your toys or your clothes, mom and dad may take them all away from you. But beyond that basic level, in the kingdom and in the world, the biblical way to acquire authority is to submit to authority. By our biblical definition, all legitimate authority is earned and then delegated. Because authority proceeds from the throne of God, the promotion into a higher level of authority is a promotion from God. All promotion into a higher level of authority, when done properly, is a promotion from God. Conversely, any demotion from ordained authority needs to be judged as a demotion by God. When any leader has to sit somebody down, that's demotion. And that person who is demoted needs to really judge themselves and ask, did I earn that? Did I earn that demotion? What, what did I do wrong? And I would encourage any believer to go ask their leadership, why did you sit me down? Did I do something wrong? Did I disappoint you? Did I fail you? If we, you and I want to be really good stewards of authority, we want to make sure we're honoring and succeeding in the level of authority we've been given. Psalm 75, 6 and 7 says, For promotion comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. So in order to get promotion, you have to be judged. And you can see why a lot of Americans aren't uh, promoted because they don't like judgment. But in order to get the gold medal, you have to be judged. In order to get the scholarship, you have to be judged. In order to get the promotion on the job, you have to be judged. So let's embrace judgment and be promoted. God is a judge. He puts down one. That doesn't mean insult. That means demotion. And he sets up another. So we would do well to look at all demotion and all promotion in a context of uh, God's hand upon us. If we are promoted, that's more authority, and that's promotion. If we're demoted, authority is taken away from us. That's spiritual demotion. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. Here is a verse that teaches us to submit to authority. And the more we submit to the authorities in our life, whether it's mom and dad, whether it's a church leader, whether it's a secular leader, whether it's police, civil, laws of the land, the more we submit, the, the more we're going to be qualified to be given more authority. We don't let felons vote because they lost the rights. We don't let felons carry weapons because they lost the rights. There are things you can do to make sure you never taste any authority in life. When we put people in prison, we strip from them every freedom and every authority they have. We let them retain the freedom of autonomy and the freedom to live. But they are imprisoned. They are incarcerated. And every bit of authority is taken from them. Now, if they start to behave properly in that prison or penal colony, they can be given more authority within the penal colony. They get to maybe push the book cart around. They maybe get to have longer yard time. Maybe they get to host the chapel service. Maybe they get to stay out later. Maybe they have longer uh, conjugal visits. I don't know. Uh, you see it with Joseph. He was in prison, and the more faithfully he served, 
the prison keeper, the more authority he was given. Before long, he was over the entire prison. Yes, he was the prisoner, but he had been promoted to being over the entire prison. The divine promotion into more authority will always bring with it a higher level of accountability and stewardship. This is because authority exists for the purpose of bringing about organization and peace. If someone with authority fails to accomplish its assigned mandate, they will be judged by God as ineffective or derelict in their duty and face demotion out of the seat of authority. I think this is a simple concept, and I just consider as a pastor, when I appoint a leader, I'm giving them a measure of my authority, and I'm expecting them to use that authority to organize a department, to make sure it runs harmoniously, to make sure the people are trained, to make sure that that department is always coming up. I have given that individual, whether it's a male or a female, I've given them a measure of my authority, the authority I've been given by God Almighty to shepherd this flock. It's a department I can't run because I don't have the time or the know-how. They have the know-how and the time. They just need my authority, so I delegate it to them. If they then fail to bring harmony to that department, if they fail to bring structure and discipline to that department, if they're always flying by the seat of their pants, shooting from the hip, never prepared, and that department begins to descend into chaos and strife, I will either rebuke them or remove them or perhaps rebuke them, then remove them, and I'll put somebody else in that seat. That's the importance of having authority. And that is also how you gain it and keep it. You steward it properly. Someone else will then be promoted into the vacated seat. This was the judgment against Eli the high priest. Let's look at a longer passage here, 1 Samuel 2, 30 through 31, and then verse 35. God speaking, Wherefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that thy Eli's house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, Be it far from me, for they that Honor me, I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, and there shall not be an old man in your house. And I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. This judgment against Eli the high priest was, I'm cutting off your lineage and I'm going to raise up and appoint to me a high priest better than you. I will raise up a faithful high priest that shall do according to that which is in my heart and in my mind. That's how we get authority. We say, Lord, what do you want done? Use me to accomplish your will. Most leaders start off with that mindset. And then somehow in the midst of serving God, they forget that this is God's thing and they slowly begin to think it's their thing, and they no longer accomplish what God wants, so therefore God has to hit click, and he ejects them and puts the next guy in their place. Eli's failure to properly steward the authority inherent in the high priest's office and discipline his wicked sons cost him his life and his son's life. It also forfeited his lineage from ever being priests. That's a harsh judgment, but it's one worth considering. If you and I, if we fail to take the authority God gives us wherever we may be in life. If we fail to properly steward it, then we fail to bring about peace and harmony for our families, our marriages, our children, our grandchildren. And it could be we so fail that level of authority, God has to demote us to a lower level of authority. And now our marriages and our kids are being raised up in a lesser quality of authority 
therefore a lesser quality of peace and harmony and stability than they were ordained to. And now what will become of our children? They're going to be raised in a potentially chaotic environment. They're going to be exposed to turmoil and tumult and, and strife. And what will be the end result of their soul? That's why it's so critical. If you and I have been honored by God to be promoted to a seat of authority, we should never fail our God. And by his grace, we don't have to fail him. By his grace, we can sustain that level of leadership, that level of holiness, that level of accountability and work ethic. We don't have to come down. And honestly, for my kids' sake, I want to make sure I never come down. I don't want to be the reason my kids fail. I want to be the reason my kids, my grandkids, and my great-grandkids go further than me. Samuel, Eli's disciple, became a leader over Israel in place of Eli. He replaced Eli as a national leader. And then there was another high priest that took Eli's place directly. And then a couple years later, the same thing happened to King Saul. When King Saul disobeyed and failed to exercise his kingly obligation, which was to command the people to do what he told them to do, and instead he listened to his people, a severe judgment fell upon Sam, uh, Saul, King Saul, for failing to operate in his delegated authority. And the prophet said to King Saul in judgment, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Because we've rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord said, we'll be rejected from being king. If we reject our authorization and decide, you know, I don't want the hard work. I don't want the hard task. I want it easy. I just want to let the people run the show. God will replace us. King Saul admitted to being intimidated by the people saying, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He failed to accurately execute the responsibilities required of his office. The judgment against Saul was identical to Eli's. And Samuel, in 1 Samuel 15, 28 said, The Lord has rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. What? What a harsh statement. God said, Today I've taken this kingdom away from you. Though he still stayed in the king's office for quite a few years. And he said, I'm giving it to your neighbor, who quite honestly is a better human than you. This teaches us that God doesn't view everybody equally. We're all redeemed equally. We're all worth the blood of Jesus. That's our baseline value. Even the hobo drug addict who just robbed a bank and committed some heinous assault last night, living in a ditch, he's worth the blood of Jesus. But he's not as good as the righteous mama who disciples her kids. He's not as good as the righteous preacher who stands in the pulpit and leads his flocks into paths of righteousness. God said as much, I'm giving it to a neighbor who's better than you. God used some people as better than others because our God is a just God and justice doesn't see everybody equally. The kingdom of Israel was given to David, howbeit it would be several years it would be several years before David would officially sit upon the king's throne. We know David did a much better job stewarding the seat of authority than did Saul. So let's look at stealing authority. So now we've covered the first step, which is submit to it. 
Now let's talk about the first unbiblical way to acquire authority, that is to steal it. This is the one that probably makes the most sense uh, concerning sinful authority, and that is the theft of it. The Bible wholeheartedly condemns the theft of authority, and yet most of us have done it. Our kids inadvertently learn how to do it because of the sin nature, and it becomes a very dangerous practice and habit to get into. This act takes the form of insurrections, usurpations, manipulation, and even marital tension. That is stealing authority. In terms of civil governments, coups typically produce despots and dictators. So the Bible records several stories cataloging such actions and their tragic endings. I, I would probably tell you the two, uh, the two concepts of authority theft we're most familiar with would be the, the coup, the coup d'etat, which usually is a military coup because that's the only way you oust the sitting president or premier or king. You gather enough of a military force that they can't resist you. You storm the presidential palace. Either you shoot the king, the premier, the president, or you arrest him or you cause him to flee for his life and go into hiding because if he doesn't flee, he doesn't know whether you're going to shoot him, arrest him, or kill his family. And so what happens with that dictator, despot, is he has stolen the seat. The people didn't elect him. God didn't appoint him. He just stole it. He used military might and an insurrection and discord among the nation. He stirred up and fomented a, a disgruntled military and used his military prowess to promise his soldiers and his generals power and wealth and women and what have you. If you'll follow me and risk your life, to take over our government. I think that's the most common understanding we may have for extreme authority theft. The other end of the spectrum is the Jezebel who manipulates her husband to get him to do what she wants because she knows she's not in charge biblically, but she wants to be. So she manipulates him or whines or uh, nags him until he submits to her whims even though maybe wisdom and his better judgment says don't. But let's look at a few examples of theft of authority from the scriptures. The first one we have is the gainsaying of Korah from the book of Numbers chapter 16. Korah gathered two brothers, Dathan and Abiram, and 250 chief princes of Israel in an ecclesiastical coup. An ecclesiastical, actually in political coup, they were not content to follow Moses as executive and Aaron as high priest. So uh, the setting is this, is that Korah was a cousin to Moses. That means he was a Levite. Dathan and Abiram, they were uh, Reubenites. So their beef is something totally different. It appears that Korah wanted to be a priest and Dathan and Abiram just didn't like Moses' leadership. So we have something interesting because it's not just a political coup. It's ecclesiastical. It's church related. We don't want this preacher and we don't want the high priests. We don't want this executive and we don't want these two uh, holy men or this one holy man. We, we want something better. They were not content to follow Moses as executive and Aaron as high priest. Their attempted theft ended in judgment and that judgment was death. It wasn't just Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They were able to then move among the princes, that is the noblemen in this 
wandering tribe of people and quickly gather 250, which means there was a lot of disgruntled people murmuring around that it wasn't just the two of them or the three of them in their tent talking. Without hardly any work, they had a pretty good coup on their hands and they wanted to undermine God-ordained authority. And in the end, God judged it. Korah and his family went to hell alive. Uh, the 250 princes who wanted to be priests, I guess, they were consumed by fire. And it all went south, literally, pretty quickly. The second is the insurrection of Absalom when King David's son, one of his younger sons, Absalom, decided he wanted the throne. There's a lot of conjecture as to his motives or the disgruntled nature of his motives. His motives were, I want the throne, but why? Why was he not content to be king. I personally believe, you see, uh, when, when Absalom sits at the gate in 2 Samuel 15, he begins to literally kiss and kiss up to all the people that are coming into the city to have judgment, to, to receive uh, monarchical or kingly adjudication. And he said, you know, would to God there was somebody that could execute judgment. Would to God the king would deputize someone to execute judgment. Now, that's an important statement, because if you remember, Absalom's sister, I think Tamar, was raped by their brother, and David did nothing about it. So Absalom killed his brother for raping his sister. And I, I wonder, this is just conjecture on my part, I wonder if Absalom isn't bitter because his dad is failing to execute swift justice among his family. David was great at many things. Family was not one of them. David was a tremendous military leader. He was a great king. He was a worshiper. He was a man of the word, but he stunk when it, come to, when it came to families and his family's peace. He could not execute justice and judgment among his sons to save his own life. It ended up costing four sons their lives. And I just wonder if what Absalom is saying, would to God there was somebody deputized by the king to execute judgment. I, I don't wonder if that wasn't a sincere complaint and grievance in Absalom's heart. If you remember, he killed his brother and then had to flee so that he himself didn't die. Then after a couple years, Joab tells David, hey, call your son back. Call your son back. And so I wonder if Absalom didn't just stew over this thing and say, you know what, I can do a better job, and I think I will. Absalom stole the hearts of much of Israel away from his father, King David, and then tried to steal the throne. His attempted theft ended in judgment, and that judgment was death. Yeah, we're seeing a pattern here. Then we had the insurrection of Adonijah. That was another one of David's sons. Adonijah proclaimed himself the new king of Israel while his father David was still alive. And we would add without his father David's approval. You know you're crazy when the king is in the other room and you announce, I'm king now. And David's not even incapacitated. He's just older. His attempted theft ended in a severe rebuke at first and then ultimately death when Adonijah, after the eventual death of David, Solomon becomes king. Adonijah is kind of put out to roost. He's not executed for his treason. 
mercy is shown him. But then he comes along and asks Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, can I have Abishag? That's David's last concubine, which he never slept with, but she was a young damsel that was used to keep David warm and to care for him. He said, give me Abishag to wife. So that's basically saying, give me my dad's last girlfriend. I want to marry her. And Solomon says, you know, you shouldn't have asked for that. And because you've asked for that, you're a dead man. And so he's executed for it. The Bible's full of a bunch of weird stories of perversion. And what I love about our Bible is that it doesn't shy away from the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it shows you the foibles and the failures of even the greatest of Bible heroes. And then finally, we have the, probably the most popular, the manipulations of Jezebel, recorded primarily in 1 Kings 21. Here, Jezebel used her husband's authority to get what she wanted. Her treachery saw many righteous people murdered. God never acknowledged her as any kind of leader. Neither did the prophets who were sent to judge her. Her theft of authority ended in death. Now, I do like to point this out. I recently taught it to here at our church. That as much as Jezebel gets a bad rap and we call the, the boisterous feminist nagging wives of America's post-feminist era, we call them Jezebels in the church. One of the things you do see about Jezebel, she was never condescending to her husband. She was very much an encourager. She seemed to love Ahab. She just happened to know how to exploit his power when he was too spineless to do something with it. But unlike American Christian Jezebels, she never raised her voice at her husband. She never yelled at her husband that we can see in the Bible. She never nagged him or berated him or put him down. She seemed to be quite the encourager. When, when Ahab came in from wanting to purchase the vineyard and uh, Jezreel wouldn't let him, Jezreel the Carmelite, I think that's right, She's, he was crying. Ahab was crying. And she said, my husband, why are you crying? What's wrong? You, you see her trying to encourage her husband. And she said, honey, you're the king. Do whatever you want. You're the king. And I, do, I find it interesting that you look at some of the, the stories of Jezebel, and she's an encourager. And most modern Christian American Jezebels are not encouragers. And so maybe in that regard, the Bible Jezebel might have been a better wife than the spirit-filled Jezebel. Just food for thought. The New Testament commands us to submit to those who have the rule over us and be subject unto the higher powers and to give honor to whom honor is due. Stolen authority always ends tragically because, to quote Romans 13, there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. All right, I think we understand that. So let's get to our last subject now as we kind of conclude this teaching, and that is the subject of fabricating authority. That one may seem a little harder to understand or comprehend, but let's see what we can do to explain it. Some people foolishly think they can gain authority by creating it, and this, too, is dangerous. It might be a little bit better than stealing it from the king or the pastor or the father or the husband or the sergeant or the boss, but it's still dangerous. The motives behind authority fabrication vary, but generally range from insecurity and the need to feel important to impatience 
and insubordination. So let's, let's talk about some fabricators. Fabrication or fabricators include the following. Hirelings and illegitimate pastors. This may be one of the most premier examples of a fabricated authority. These men or women typically abandon the churches they were assigned to by God and, quote, start their own work. They weren't sent out by ordained authority. They were driven out by their insubordination. And when they land and start their non-for-profit 501c3 and they ordain themselves pastors and, and ordain themselves a, a ministry, they have, in a sense, fabricated authority because it didn't come from the pastor they abandoned. And if it didn't come through the pastor they abandoned, they, they probably aren't authorized. That makes them a hireling. Ephesians talks about, or Acts chapter 20 talks about Ephesian sectarians. These men arose from within the Ephesians church who drew disciples after themselves and away from the ordained leadership. That's an example of a fabricated authority. When you move in a church and draw sheep away from their shepherd and elders so you can have them in a Bible study so you can be their spiritual head, that's a fabrication of authority. It begins to creep into stealing authority. Paul uh, spoke about these in Acts 20, as recorded by Luke, and he said that they did so by speaking perverse things, that is, things contrary to biblical decorum. They fabricated a leadership role in the lives of other believers. Uh, I would give my two cents worth. It may not only be worth but half of that. But a lot of uh, Facebook ministries are fabricators. When you're, when you're in the ministry and it's only on Facebook, you probably fabricated authority. There's a lot of examples, but the ministry seems to be one of the best ones concerning the kingdom. How about boss pets? I think if you work in the secular world, especially in corporate America, you understand very well what a boss pet is. It's like a teacher's pet. These individuals typically work under someone, but create an imaginary position of authority just to keep themselves, uh, just to make themselves feel grandiose. <laughs> Imaginary seats of authority might include, you know, I am the keeper of the bathroom key. If you want the bathroom key, you need to come check with me on that. Well, it says who? It's almost like prison house. It's like that group over there, they're the keeper of the basketball court. If you want to manage that, if you want to go play basketball, you got to go through that posse over there. Well, no, that basketball court belongs to the corrections department, which is funded by me, a taxpayer. So that's my basketball court. So you don't need to go through some skinhead who's fabricated authority with a shank on the prison yard. <laughs> Manager of the equipment sign-in sheet. You know, if you want to get some equipment around here, hard hats, jackhammers, shovels, you need to sign in with me. That's, that's my assignment. It's, so come to me. You see the immaturity and the insecurity, the, the desire to feel more important than you really are. Or the inspector of fleet vehicle tire pressure or the parking lot overseer. We see this in churches. We see people take upon themselves roles that aren't even real because they want to feel important. So rather than submit to the necessary role and the necessary position, they go and make something up so they can have some authority and be somebody. It's really, it's embarrassing to watch. I'm the keeper of the name tags. I'm the keeper of the walkie-talkies. I'm the keeper of the parking lot cones. Really? Are you? Or are you just a 55-year-old man who never went anywhere in life and you feel important or want to feel important? 
How about busybodies? These individuals are under the delusion that it is their official obligation to inquire about the affairs of others. Three different Greek words are employed to describe this fabricated authority. These words reveal that busybodies are hard workers, but not concerning the task to which they have been truly assigned. They take upon themselves the supervision of affairs that belong to others while neglecting their own business. And the, the behavior of a busybody is not praiseworthy. So look at 2 Thessalonians 3.11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, walk, working not at all, but are busybodies. They, they, they walk among folks and they feel like it's their job to know the scoop. That way I can pray for you. Did you, pastor, did you hear about so-and-so? Uh, didn't, don't really care. Well, let me tell you, don't really want you to. They, sometimes the busybody wants to be the, the source of all information. That way the pastor will bring them closer. And so the busybody fabricates an authority that they think the pastor needs. Or maybe it's the workplace busybody who gets the scoop and becomes almost like a rat on the job, on the job site. Or maybe it's in the, the teacher's pet does the same thing and kind of rats on all the other kids just to earn some attention. Usually those that fabricate authority are attention deficit or attention uh, they have daddy issues and weren't given enough attention by their father or mother, and so they're still craving that attention. I, I pastor people like this, and I have to really give them a lot of encouragement because <laughs> they mean well, they're just immature still. 1 Timothy 5.13 says, And withal they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers also, and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. Now that's not, that's not good. And then finally, 1 Peter says, uh, but chapter 4, let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. What, what, okay, that, that seems kind of sharp and stark. I can understand a murderer suffering. I can understand a thief suffering. I can understand an evildoer suffering, but... Peter puts the busybody in the same category as murderers, thieves, and evildoers. And as we've said here, busybodies are fabricators of authority. They move among the church family. They move among the family reunion. They troll Facebook just to have the scoop because it makes them feel important. And if you want to feel important, that's great. We all want to feel important, but feel important biblically. Feel important for righteous sake. Feel important for being clean. Feel important because God has a place for you in the kingdom and it isn't being a busybody or a gossip. But those are the three examples that I think of and deal with as fabricating authority. The hireling, illegitimate pastor, and every preacher in the ministry knows people like this. They go to the mission field. They, were, they went. They weren't sent. And all of a sudden, they just pull themselves on top of people and they boss them around. Or the illegitimate pastor who got offended at his last church and he just, the hireling, he goes out and starts a church that isn't really called of God. And so the church, the whole church is illegitimate. You have the boss pet who's on the job and fabricates a position where he's some kind of equipment manager or parking lot overseer or the bathroom key holder. It's like a Lord of the Rings or something. None shall pass. Anyway, then you have the busybodies. And the root behind most of this is somebody's insecure and wants to feel important. 
True authority is W-O-R-K, work. And true authority cries out to God for help with that W-O-R-K, work, because we know we're going to answer to God for it. James says, be not many masters. Don't strive to be in charge, because we that are in charge shall receive the greater condemnation. And we that are ordained to receive the greater condemnation, we cry out to God because we have a revelation of what that condemnation and judgment is going to look like. In conclusion... Authority is given to create and maintain peace and order wherever people are found. Authority is used to advance institutions, be they families, businesses, church, militaries, etc. God desires to grant every one of us more authority. But the only biblical way and ethical way to obtain authority is to submit to it. Successful submission to and use of authority will result in promotion into more authority. Rebellion to or dereliction of authority will result in demotion and another taking your office. I'm going to read that last sentence again. Rebellion to authority or the dereliction of authority will result in demotion and another person taking your office. Selah. Pause. Think about that. Amen.